Welcome back to the next episode of the BC Law Just Law podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Tom Blakely. Uh, we're here with uh, Professor Judy McMurrow of BC Law uh, to talk about an interesting case uh, that uh, came out about a month ago in the Wall Street Journal, a case of 131 uh, federal judges, which were found, or who were found, rather, to have basically heard cases that came before them involving parties uh, in which they own stock. Uh, we had judges uh, were found by the Wall Street Journal to have traded the stock of the companies during the trial that was going on before them. Just all sorts of things that uh, probably shouldn't have been going on. And so we have uh, Professor McMurrow to uh, discuss this with us today. He has a background in ethics and judicial ethics and sort of all these issues that are important uh, in trying to examine these issues. So, Professor McMurrow, how are you? Uh, I'm great. I'm thrilled to be here today to talk about the subject. And because uh, judicial ethics is such an interesting contrast to legal ethics and that when with legal ethics and every law student take is required to take a course you're constantly looking at what you can do and the um, the norms and, and rules for uh, during the attorney client relationship your relationship with clients conflicts of interest duty of confidentiality to the court system your obligation to um, candor to the court uh, representing organizations that uh, even rudy giuliani's a truthfulness um, uh, obligation that all of that is focuses on the lawyer's role typically with as a lawyer and a little bit deals with a lawyer's role outside like if a lawyer commits a crime judicial ethics is actually the opposite almost all the subjects of judicial ethics um, almost all uh, focus uh, or the vast majority focus on the judges the limitation of what the judges can do outside their judicial role because once they cross that Rubicon from being an advocate to being a neutral, to being a judge, the expectation is now they're going to adjust their activities, including their private activities, to minimize the impact and to avoid the appearance of impropriety or the appearance of partiality. And it plays out all through the judge's life so that in this particular case, it happens to do, deal with um, stock, which and let's be honest, a lot of these activities likely are happening um, within the context of their um, pension savings and things like that, Or, uh, but also they can no longer actively engage in politics. They, they can't lend the prestige of their judicial office for private benefits, so they can no longer be Judge Tom Blakely getting people to give to the Jimmy Fund. No, that would be use, using your judicial role. So it impacts private life, and that's what we were seeing in this case. Uh, well, before we get further into the case, uh, could you just introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background, uh, what you do here at BC Law, what you did, you know, before becoming a professor, just what, what's your, you okay. know, what do you study, what what should okay. people know about you? Oh, so, uh, well, I joined BC Law faculty in 1985. I had clerked for two years, very lucky, clerked on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and then at the U.S. Supreme Court for Chief Justice Warren Burger, then was three years at a law firm, Steptoe & Johnson in Washington, D.C. Came to BC, I did spent three years teaching at Washington and Lee in Lexington, Virginia, but otherwise the arc of my teaching career has been here at BC Law. I write primarily in the area of legal ethics and also comparative ethics, a Chinese legal profession, but I was lucky enough to serve for 10 years on the Massachusetts Committee on Judicial Ethics, where I was the layperson along with 
for other for judges to give advice to Massachusetts judges when they posed questions that they were thinking of engaging in certain activity and they would ask, would this be, is this in compliance with the Massachusetts Code of Judicial Conduct? So it's through that experience that I developed pretty strong interest in judicial ethics. Uh, no, I remember, I think this is your, your second time on the podcast. I know earlier in the year we, when we were doing this over Zoom, you came and talked about uh, COVID and you, <laughs> so I, was, I had you for, for torts at the <laughs> spring of my uh, my 1L. And uh, I think the issue you're talking about then is like, who's liable for, for spreading mm-hmm. COVID if you're not? Anyway, so just turning to the, you know, th- th- so this all started on uh, September 28th. So the journal, uh, Wall Street Journal published uh, the original story. There's There's been some follow-ups to this. Uh, James Grimaldi, Coulter Jones, and uh, Joe Palazzolo. Uh, wrote the original story, which opened with more than 130 federal judges have violated U.S. law and judicial ethics by overseeing court cases involving companies which they or their family-owned stock. A uh, Wall Street Journal investigation found that judges have improperly failed to disqualify themselves in 685 court cases around the nation since 2010. Uh, the jurists were appointed uh, by nearly every president from Lyndon Johnson to Donald Trump, which I was... I had to do some mental math to figure out how that was possible, but yeah. apparently it is. About two-thirds of federal district judges disclosed holdings of individual stocks, and nearly one of every five who did heard at least one case involving those stocks. Alerted to violations by the journal, 56 of the judges have directed court clerks to notify parties in 329 lawsuits that they should have recused themselves. Uh, that means new judges might be, might be assigned potentially upending rulings. Uh, and finally, when judges participate in such cases, about two thirds of their rulings on motions that were contested came down in favor of they or their family's uh, financial interests. So, what do you make of them? That, that sounds pretty shocking. And I know there's a lot to it, but yeah. you know, when you're one of these judges and you, you got you know, big company X versus big company Y comes before you, and you know, you're holding stock, like it's it kind of boggles the mind that that's possible. But here we are. Right. Well, my what I predict happened is that many of these judges were actually not paying attention to um, the specifics of their stockholding. This is a generous interpretation that they had a financial advisor and that financial advisor frequently um, will trade stocks and um, the whoever the person their their client doesn't actually know that today they're buying Apple or tomorrow or others. Uh, so that I would say that there is a I would predict that a fair number of of these matters were the judges simply not paying attention and not that in a, a stock portfolio that likely holds a range of stocks that um, they would hold stock, stocks in profitable companies as would most people who do hold a stock you know portfolio. So I let's say a particular chunk of them it was truly that the judges weren't paying attention. What that suggests is that, but but nonetheless to say they should have recused themselves or um, so that in those circumstances, the failure is a system failure in having appropriate screening, that having some way in which it is easier for judges if they disclose these stocks to have a system that would um, screen and alert to say warning, warning, Apple coming up, because one can envision circumstances where the judge um, at, you know, di- forgot. I mean, there's an awful lot of stocks out there, and I know that's a generous interpretation. But let's assume a chunk of them are um, not ill-intentioned, not intentionally using the uh, uh, wanting to benefit from their ruling. But that still recognizes a system failure. They need a better screening system. Now, now, there are a wide array of 
mean, I, I suppose you could, you could call them excuses that were used by some of the judges when the journal uh, reached out to them. They did, you know, in the reporting, there's a, another article where they talk about, um, you know, in essence, how they found these violations and what they did. They sort of contacted the chambers of every judge, and which I assume was not the way they wanted to start their day, getting that phone call. Uh, and you heard a lot of different things. There's one case that they, they profiled here in the original story. A case involving Comcast says in the Comcast case, a Colorado judge, uh, Colorado couple, excuse me, asked uh, Judge Babcock, I guess is this judge, mm -hmm. to issue an order blocking Comcast from accessing their property to install fiber optic cable, uh, representing themselves in court. Andrew and Connor and uh, Mark, Mary Henry, I guess the parties accused Comcast workers of bullying them, scaring their 10 year old daughter, and injuring their dog. Mm -hmm. Allegations of the company denied. Judge Babcock. Uh, ruled the couple had continually blocked Comcast's access to the easement. He set the case back to state court as Comcast wanted. Now, uh, what's going on with the fiber optic cable in these people's yard? I don't really think that's going to throw the stock price necessarily, yeah. but nonetheless, it's a yeah. it's a conflict. They contacted him. He said, I dropped the ball. Uh, he blamed flawed internal procedures. They talked a lot about it. And then he says, mm -hmm. thank you for helping me stay on my toes the way I'm supposed to. Um, there's a lot of talk of these systems. There's sort of... Um, mm -hmm. I think you can call them ethical screenings, like there's different systems that they use um, to try to keep track of what stock they own, who the parties are. Mm -hmm. uh, they blame that. Uh, they blame not knowing who they own. So this is a sort of a wide array mm -hmm. of uh, reasons for getting their hand caught in the cookie jar. But I mean, it, it's hard to think that they had no idea every yeah. time. Or I mean, I guess in this case, I think you could think he might say, well, this case doesn't really have any bearing on anything you know what, what you know i'm not gonna go sell my stock because of it or i'm not gonna recuse myself right. like do you buy that do you buy all these excuses or i actually I, uh, call me naive i actually do think there's a lot of legitimacy but that doesn't mean they shouldn't they shouldn't stay on their toes better they shouldn't have better screening and that but like the underlying legal issue about a um cable company being able to have a this prescriptive an easement is as i recall a fairly well settled legal doctrine it's not in dispute it's not some radical new concept and as you say a single matter that being said one of the goals of judicial ethics is to say we want judges not to, um, not only to actually be unbiased or follow the law um, and or do their best to be um, unbiased but we also want the appearance it's important that they avoid the appearance of impropriety. And that's a concept that was long ago um, not a central feature anymore of legal ethics, but still is a major central feature of judicial ethics. It's important to avoid the appearance of impropriety. So I think, um, Tom, you have a really good case to say it has the appearance of impropriety. Um, I think in many of these examples, I'm skeptical that it actually resulted in bias. But the point is, why should I ever... As a citizen at large, or if you're a litigant, why should I have to wonder about that? And the whole purpose of the avoiding the appearance of impropriety is so that of all the wonders and worries we have, if we're involved in litigation or we see important issues going into our courts, at least let's do our best to have a high screening to make sure the judge's personal it won't personally benefit from the opinion. So I think the the journal's article does a great public service in saying. Okay, if there are system flaws, then up your system. Okay. Now, the journal's reporting says that nothing bars judges from owning stocks, but federal law since 1974 has prohibited judges from hearing cases that involve a party in which they, their spouses, or minor, minor children have a legal or equitable, so in essence, right. owning stock. And there's a lot made 
of this 1974 law. Can you help us understand what that law did or was supposed to do? And um, well, I, th I think, so I'm, I'm not deeply conversant okay. on this law, but the underlying idea that once again, we want to avoid the appearance of impropriety, that it looks like a, um, a judge is directly benefiting from um, a, a, a directly benefiting from um, a ruling in their matter. On the other hand, um, especially given a world where so much of our retirement savings are in defined contribution plans, um, and we're told we have to save far more than for Social Security, the place that most you have savings is in the stock market. So somehow there has to be a manageable system that allows judges to own stock, but by God, do that screening and don't hear cases that um, directly involve um, your stock matters. And of course, we have the, we won't even go to indirectly involved. So the um, purpose of the law makes a lot of sense. It's, okay. it's, now, the, the journal also wrote, said uh, violations of the 1974 law almost never become public. Judges' financial disclosures aren't online, are cumbersome to request, and some sometimes take years to access. Judges are informed if anyone requests to see their disclosures, creating a disincentive for lawyers who might fear annoying judges in whose courtrooms they frequently appear. So it sounds like from that, not only is essentially nobody policing this, but but for this story, yeah. no one would even be like, are, are there sufficient right. safeguards for this? Okay, that's a that is a great question. And so we that that idea that lawyers don't want to make a fuss because they don't want to um, upset judges if they appear frequently before the judge. And we saw that very much in the Wall Street Journal article when they were doing Rodney, uh, is it Gil, St mm -hmm. Gil Sapp? Yeah, they, they rang him up pretty yeah, well. Yeah, and um, but they could not, if the lawyers who practiced regularly before him were not criticizing the judge. They were saying, oh, no, he's a fair judge. And is that an actual genuine feeling or are they pulling their punches because they're concerned about publicly criticizing the judge? So, yes, that is an underlying concern that if you want um, uh, to be able to monitor it, there, there, there is the reporting system, but then who looks at the reports? That being said, there's also it's not irrelevant that judges would also have a privacy interest. Now, you do give up a fair number of freedoms when you become a judge. You can no longer engage in political activity. You can't typically, like in Massachusetts, you can't give speeches in front of advocacy groups. There's a lot of things. You, you constrain your personal uh, rights when you become a judge. And um, so it, one of the questions is, do you constrain your ability to keep at least... Um, some of your financial matters private. And I think the 74 law is suggesting you do lose privacy there. I think most public officials do in terms of requiring disclosure. I guess this all sort of begs an overall question, which I think you know a lot of people have asked before, or I guess observed. And I guess that's, why do we let judges and politicians own stock in the first place? The journal points out, at least with respect to federal judges, uh, the nation's roughly 600 full-time federal judges, supplemented by about 460 semi-retired jurors called senior judges, wield enormous power, holding lifetime appointments. They preside over hundreds of thousands of seminal, civil uh, and criminal cases each year in 94 court districts. Uh, you know, I know that it says they have soup to nuts control over all elements of their courtroom from pretrial process to and trial to criminal pleas, uh, you know, really everything that goes on there, they have wide latitude. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I know with respect to members of Congress, there's, you know, I know like Nancy Pelosi, for instance, it's, it's often pointed out how many just bazillions of dollars her husband trades. And I remember 60 minutes a few years ago, asked her about stock in, 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 in visa and then that sort of, it's like, mm -hmm. 
why are we allowing this? And like, shouldn't there be more uh, sort of a, a guardrail to letting the yeah. people who decide, you know, what's going to happen in our country mm -hmm. also own stock that uh, rises and falls with their decisions? Well, there's a couple strains in your question. One is, yeah, one is, um, can we say universally that the decision of judges how much does it impact the stock market directly or indirectly? And you, you, you're making a pretty strong causal claim, but I'm not sure is going to be causation. It happened, it came up in our last podcast, right? Yeah. Um, that, uh, so that's issue number one. Issue number two is good, bad, right, or wrong. We have an, uh, we have a public private collaboration in the United States. If in fact that, um, the, the place, the classic place of sort of wealth, um, accumulation and growth is through owning stocks. Imagine a world where we say nobody could run for public. Once you run for public office, you have to sell all your stocks. That means, okay, the only what, the only place I can put my money and my defined contribution plan is in treasuries and get 1%. Mm -hmm. It's that that would have quite, uh, I think you would see the number of people who were willing to become judges or public officials go down dramatically because they would have no way to help build and secure for their retirement. Because it's well recognized that social security or the government pension alone is unlikely to be sufficient. And also for government pensions, you have to accumulate for certain years. And as you start out, you don't know if you're gonna make all those years. So I think that it's in a, in a world where uh, we have this public-private uh, free enterprise uh, relationship that it literally saying no public, public officials can own stock would be a pretty bad idea. Now, it doesn't mean, though, that judges who have decision-making power don't need to um, be monitoring much more closely. Um, in some instances, there's efforts to put things in blind trust so that you don't actually know what you own. Although one could say, you read the newspaper and um, uh, you even if you don't know what you own, you know that certain really high-profile cases, often IP, like in there in Texas, um, could have an impact. Um, although one doesn't always know the long-term impact. Sometimes uh, uh, a shocking IP case opens up new markets. So, uh, But I think that's a real reason why. It'd be too much of a sacrifice. Right. Now, now I know, you know, obviously, we don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but in, in some of these instances with some of these judges, it is pretty remarkable. And you have one a uh, case involving uh, Judge Lewis, who heard a trial involving Walmart. Uh, it says reported on her disclosure uh, form five purchases of the shares in a six-day span while she pre presided in a suit against the company in August 2017. Uh, it says her financial disclosure form recorded five purchases from three different accounts in quick succession. The form uh, shows that the judge traded Walmart stock bought on August 25th, 29th, and 30th, uh, with the 30th being the day that she dismissed the case. Uh, at the time, her retirement account, which is what you're talking about, uh, and a trust each held as much as $15,000 of Walmart stock. And another trust held 15, th between $15,000 and $50,050. Uh, her disclosure form uh, shows. I mean, we've got this other guy who's really, they, they sort of made out to be the poster child of this, yeah. who, who you referred to, mm -hmm. referred to, this Judge Rodney Gilstrap, mm -hmm. uh, who, uh, I guess, holds another record, has taken on 138 cases since 2011 that involved companies in which he or a family member had an interest. Uh, companies include Microsoft with 53 cases, Walmart with 36 cases, Target 25. Uh, and, and obviously, depending on the court you're in, you know, you can hear certain cases a lot. You know, if you're hearing yeah. cases uh, in courts right. where you know, you've got certain 
you know, large mm-hmm. corporations, you know, if you're in like Delaware or New York or just certain places mm-hmm. where uh, there, there's a lot of business, you can really particularly have a problem. So maybe you're not yeah. painting with a broad brush and, and sort of banning this entirely, but it seems like there are some judges in some courts where right. this is consistently an issue. Like what right. kind of creative solutions, if, like how can you, because yeah. that just doesn't seem right. Right. Well, so one, I mean, one of the things we have a, an appearance of impropriety, and that's one of the classic canons. The judge shall avoid even the appearance of impropriety. So whatever, like one could envision that, like let's go back to the Walmart case. It would be really interesting to hear the judge's analysis of what happened there, whether it um, often the movement in and out of certain sectors happens and it layers a few days as people buy over days. And, now, but to say it doesn't look good, that's for sure. And it, so and that should not have happened. We don't actually know also whether that Walmart case is one that might have affected the stock market. But again, doesn't matter because the judge should avoid even the appearance of impropriety. I mean, if that third thing, we don't know, like 15 to 50,000 in a $4 million portfolio is probably not may not be statistically well well it may not be much of an impact but again that doesn't matter because we should avoid even the appearance of impropriety so it goes back to how do you prevent it they've got to have uh, screening somebody ought to develop a app a computer system that loads in all the judges holdings then loads in all these cases names and sends an alert mm-hmm. now this guy referring to a 64 year old judge gilstrap who we were just talking about uh, in his own defense, said he believed he didn't need to recuse himself from some cases because they required little or no action uh, on his part, and in other cases because the stocks were in a trust created for his wife. In um, you know, yeah. speaking to these systems that you yeah. were referring to, some judges yeah. said, "Oh, well, there was a spelling error, so it didn't find the right party." And it, it seems like there's there's uh, right. no shortage of excuses here for this. Like, so how, yeah. how would you respond okay. to that? Okay, well, judge. Um, is it- Gilstrap, Judge Gilstrap is just wrong. He, he, because if he has a beneficial interest in that, either himself and it, and the rules expressly include spouse, you know, close family members. Um, and if you have that beneficial interest, then you're triggered under the rules and he should have recused. Now, whether it took, it was not active trading, that's the idea. I suspect that you might have you know, said over the course of the next three months, move slowly into different sectors. And um, so then it happens sort of, it, uh, almost automatically via either computer trading or programming by whatever your financial intermediary is. Uh, but that being, so he, he, on one level, he was wrong. He had a beneficial interest. And then he's tr- trying to point out, look, it, it really didn't affect my decision-making, I think, in pl- sitting behind it. But again, mm-hmm. that doesn't matter. Judge Gilstrap, it, it presents the appearance of impropriety. And so you need to uh, uh, take a more aggressive, you have to do a, do a screening, right. recuse. But th- that idea that, like, for example, the misspelling, mm-hmm. that happens in conflicts checks at law firms. That, that, um, that somebody makes a mistake in inputting a client name and they don't pick up a conflict, that shouldn't happen. Everybody recognizes that shouldn't happen, but it does. These are not I, I don't, never assume that the law firm or the situation is um, poorly motivated, but they're gonna. The firm is gonna have to live with the consequences. More than a few firms have been disqualified in the middle of litigation because they didn't pick up a clear conflict of interest because of an error in screening, and um, so you, these judges uh, gotta live with the consequences. Mm-hmm.
Now, it seems like there's sort of an interesting dynamic here, which they refer to a little bit. You know, on the one side, you have lawyers who uh, really aren't apt or really aren't excited about the idea of raising a conflict with the judge. Right. Uh, really for their own purposes. And then at the same time, on the, on the other side of this equation, you have the judges who, you know, would sort of be upending things by raising their own conflict of interest when, uh, I, I guess, prior to this story, you know, like like some of these judges sort of allude to, like Judge Gilstrap, you know, eh, maybe it's not a big issue. So let's just, you know, let, right. let's, let's just help each other along. Um, I, I guess, who does this fall to? Like, if you're a lawyer, like, and like you said, you know, lawyers are happy to disqualify the other law firm for the case, but maybe not necessarily the judge. Is there, what do you, what do you think about that? Oh, okay, so in that case, um, so in with, when we're dealing with disqualification for legal ethics, the court is always looking to say, is this being done for strategic reasons to get a strategic advantage? Now, when it comes to um, the judge, it's unequivocal that the first obligation and the first tier screening happens by the judge. Mm -hmm. And the judge shall recuse herself if she has an interest in the law firm or there's other reasons to say that um, she would have an, an interest um, or uh, be biased in any way, or not in any way, but have an interest in that. So that at every one of these cases, it is the judge who has the frontline obligation to screen. And indeed, that's particularly important, as you noted, if there isn't strong Pub, e easy, strong public disclosure, easy way to find the information um, so that parties can look at it. I would predict that um, a law firm who, uh, when evaluating a judge, would, um, and they, they discover that the judge owns, you know, $15,000 worth of Walmart stock, and I'm Walmart, I'm not going to automatically move to disqualify the judge. I, we can predict that what that law firm will do is look at the history of the judge's rulings. And if the judge has a tendency to rule in favor of businesses, I am not making that motion to disqualify. So there's some perverse incentives there. Uh, yeah. Um, but it might be that the other side would have an incentive to make a motion to disqualify. So if this second tier it, um, screening goes by the parties, and then um, one can envision the possibility that I I look and I'm suing Walmart and the judge has $15,000 of Walmart stock. Um, it, I might with a, there, with a lawyer who's a local lawyer who's saying, we have to factor in if we lose, if we make a motion to motion for the judge to recuse herself and she doesn't, um, and then we'd be looking to see, is it immediately appealable? And if not, and we look and say, what's the risk of angering the judge? And is that worth it? Most judges are fairly hardy and um, we say shouldn't bear a grudge if there is a motion to disqualify, um, but um, judges are also human. Um, so I think I can't have a really good answer to that except to say, by God, you better have, if you had more transparent systems that would actually alert, imagine a system where all the um, stock holdings are put into a computer program and parties. And then if there's a match, then um, the judge is alerted. And after two weeks, the parties on both sides are alerted. One can envision that then nothing will can in the end eliminate that strategic concern. I don't want to make the judge mad at me. Okay. Right. Um, I, I guess how many, of the, how many of these judges, how many do you think they knew? How often do you would you say that 
you know, it, it wasn't necessarily they, they forgot or that they, you know, there was oh. a glitch in the system, but they thought like, oh. eh, I can get by with this. <laughs> oh, Tom, this is a, a, you're asking me to make an assessment about human nature. So I, I generally um, think people are uh, generally act more often than not up and up. And I think as a group, federal judges, and it doesn't matter who they appointed them, do in, internalize a uh, commitment to the rule of law. And so I would guess that probably 75% of the judges weren't aware on a conscious level they even owned the stock or didn't recall it. Because who among us, if you have a stock portfolio of people who really care, I guess, I mean, but I like it. I, I have a defined contribution plan and I don't, I have no idea what stocks we own, none. Um, but that that being said, um, some people do love it. So I, I don't know how many other people like really pay attention to their stock holdings or do themselves individual stock trading. So I would guess 75% didn't know. 20, I would guess of the 25%, um, most of them um, might have said, oh, I own, you know, let's target stock, but oh, that's not going to make any difference. And screened it out because they were only screening for actual bias. And the judge needs to screen for the appearance of bias. And they failed that last step. Okay, that makes sense. And, and I guess, you know, whether it's with respect to the law or the practices of these judges or the practices of the attorneys that uh, come before them, uh, what changes, what improvements do you think could be made to try to cut down on some of these statistics? Well, I think there's nothing quite like an expose <laughs> to up the right. game. Yeah. And since every judge knows they have... <coughs> <clears throat> Every judge knows that they have the obligation to do the first tier screening. Mm -hmm. And so I would expect that compliance is going to go up radically. Mm -hmm. And I would expect that when the Wall Street Journal does a follow up study, although this is very time consuming, um, but if they did a follow up study a year from now, people will be um, paying attention. Now, if they do a follow up study four or five years from now, I expect it's going to fall off. So, I mean, this is the power of investigative journalism to say it does shed, it sheds a light. Mm. It's important. Yeah, it's important. Yeah. So, and now this is embarrassing to these judges. And for those judges who alert the parties, I'm going to predict that a lot of those cases, um, if, if the parties, if a party lost, they've already baked it into their financials and stuff. They might say it's just not worth the time and money to go back and mm -hmm. redo it. If I and actually think I'm going to get the same outcome, mm -hmm. um, but the, those parties can make that that assessment. And um, but, going off of that, is there some kind of like statute of limitations? Like, how does it work when years later, which is what happened here, we discover oh that case from years ago, there was a conflict there. Mm -hmm. You want to do all like what are the mechanics of that? Yeah, that I do not know, and that we need our CivPro uh, mavens. Um, here to come in and say that probably it would be um, a motion to over, overturn a prior judgment or settlement. Real question, also these cases that settled in the pipeline, things, although mostly we'd be worried about actual rulings by the judge, mm -hmm. um, that um, that you'd go through, you'd request because of, um, this is not, this is not the quite new evidence, this is uh, a, a, a system flaw. So I don't know. So I'd have to, we'd have to go back and research how you do motions to overturn um, prior judgments. Right. And uh, that are presumably, all of them are presumably out time that 
outside the time for normal appeal. Right. Um, I guess the last question I'll ask, and they, they say in the story that, uh, you know, about two thirds of the time, the decisions that these judges made went or sort of favored the party in which um, they had an interest. But at the same time, I mean, not all cases are created equal, you know, sort of the stakes and what was on the line. I mean, we had one case where it was just about a fiber optic line in someone's yard. And of course you have other cases which are, you know, can oftentimes be bet the company litigation. So the stakes can really vary, but, and, and I guess it's sort of a hard question in terms of how you really measure uh, the impact of this, but right. how much, I don't know if you'd call it damage, but I, I guess in trying to, you know, assess to do the accounting of all of this, uh, how big of a deal do you think it really is when you if you try to quantify this or understand what really happened yeah. well i mean it's i think it's a good opening salvo on the part of the wall street journal mm -hmm. to um look look at that pattern the question though as you say is we then you need to do a deeper dive into the data because uh if it's an individual versus a company there is um i think probably that um company wins over individual rate uh, Pretty high. Pretty, I, well, I, th I don't know, but we'd go and have to look. We'd have to do what's our our um, baseline data mm -hmm. on this. So we don't know. Like if just like we know in like tort cases, cases that at, you know actually go to trial have a high defense verdict. Well, that's because the good cases tend to settle out. Mm -hmm. So um, we'd have to know so much more to be able to draw any strong inference there. And it's difficult, right? Because what's important to, you know, I guess a family going up against one of these major companies for the company, it's just another you know, it's, it's sort of a drop in the ocean, but for individuals, yeah. uh, it can be a lot. There was another case about someone, uh, you know, suing Microsoft for, for thousands of dollars to Microsoft, whatever, but to that mm -hmm. person, you know, they, they have an interest there. And so mm -hmm. it, it's difficult calculus to try to do. And also we have to say, well, what is the underlying legal issue? Because one person for a few thousand dollars, if it's a unique And that was, it issue, was related to a class action. Yeah. But if, yes, if you then multiply it by multiple, by a 10,000 or 100,000 others, then the cumulative effect of what looks like a fairly small rolling is significant. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, it's uh, obviously, I think the key takeaway here, like you said, is it's important for uh, the journal to shine a light on some of these things and it's important to talk about them. Uh, and I, I would sort of be interested to see years down the line uh, yeah. <laughs> if they were to study this stuff, which definitely, yeah. I mean, there's a whole article here about everything they did to try to analyze this, which is really uh, sort of got a headache after yeah. setting that one down. But uh, nonetheless, <laughs> it would be important yeah. to see just uh, just how much of a, a incentive it is to have scrutiny on you, which, you know, right. uh, I guess in this this case, they were scrutinizing the scrutinizers. Mm -hmm. But um, anyways, it's uh, important stuff. Important yeah. To talk yeah. About. Go ahead. And, and just uh, once again, to go back to the, the heart of ethics, whether it's legal ethics, judicial ethics, is it's to educate the actor, in this case, mm -hmm. the judge, about what are their obligation. And always the first tier is the judge. And so this was a great reminder to judges. It's hard for me to know whether um, folks, it it cast, um, if it will have lasting damage on their judiciary, um, but uh, it, because we are far more likely to discuss what we're concerned about political bias of judges. Mm -hmm. um, but this is, this is a question about saying, hey, what are the risks of personal um, self gain? Right. Yeah, like they say, failure is the best teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or an AFCO. I don't know if people remember from torts, you know, another <clears throat> effing growth opportunity. Mm -hmm. So these judges, I presume, I mean, that judge who said, thank you for showing me I need to up my screening was right. Well, there you have it.
Uh, Professor Mumuro, thank you okay. for coming on. Okay, always a pleasure. Always really fun. And thank you for doing these podcasts. They've been really great addition to our world of conversation when we're not hanging out quite so long after, outside the classroom. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, well, that's been the Just Law Podcast. I'm Tom Blakely. This is Professor McMurrow. And uh, thank you for tuning in. And we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Be well.